From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Wednesday, October 17th. I'm Marco Werman. The next presidential debate will focus on foreign policy. Here's what not to expect. Nuance in the context of a foreign policy debate in an American presidential election, it's sort of an oxymoron, right? <laughs> We're not having a lot of nuanced conversations about anything at this point. And later, the zinger that helped change a dictionary definition in Australia. Because if he wants to know what misogyny looks like in modern Australia, he doesn't need a motion in the House of Representatives. He needs a mirror. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save-A-Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach the public life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. And by WGBH, producer of Nova. Explore the gap between the glamorous television world of CSI and the reality of the forensic crime lab, with few established scientific standards, no central oversight, and poor regulation. Nova's Forensics on Trial, tonight at 9, 8 central on PBS. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. There's only one presidential debate left now. Next Monday in Florida, Mitt Romney and Barack Obama will slug it out over foreign policy. After last night's fireworks, I think we can expect next Monday's encounter to be feisty, too. We already know what the main topics will be. Moderator Bob Schieffer has publicly announced them. They include, and these are the subject headings provided by Schieffer himself, our longest war, Afghanistan and Pakistan. Red Lines, Israel and Iran, and the rise of China. Susan Glasser is the editor of Foreign Policy magazine. She says in last night's debate, sloganeering took the place of nuanced foreign policy debate. Look, you have Barack Obama even slipping in the killing of Osama bin Laden into a question about the economy. And I think you almost have a bumper sticker approach from from each of the candidates when it comes to foreign policy right now. If, if Obama is saying, hey, elect me, I killed Osama bin Laden, Romney is saying, hey, here's the guy who screwed up. Benghazi as a stand-in, if you will, for the broader issue of uh, just what has the United States gotten out of the upheaval in the Arab world. Right. So Benghazi, Libya, I mean, there it was again. So much has been said about the White House response to the tragedy in Benghazi and the death of uh, four Americans, including Chris Stevens at the embassy. What is the back and forth about Benghazi and whether it was or not a terrorist act? Why does it have such staying power? What is that argument fundamentally about for you? It seems to me that the reason that the Romney campaign hasn't let it go, there are probably several reasons. Number one, of course, they're looking for any advantage right now when it comes to something they can attack and criticize the president on, much more so as a challenger than laying out an affirmative program of uh, their vision of the world. What they're looking to do is really to critique the performance of the other guy. So this offers a chance to do that. It also, in a way, seems to undercut the Obama campaign's at times triumphalist narrative even about al-Qaeda being on the brink of strategic defeat, as Leon Panetta called it. Uh, You don't hear that much 
much from uh, the White House anymore. Mm. Now, this was, uh, as everyone knows, a town hall style debate. So maybe the people in Hempstead, New York, didn't uh, want to focus on foreign policy. What was missing uh, foreign policy wise from the debate for you, though? What questions were not asked? Oh my goodness! You know where to start. We we ran a, a list, a somewhat humorous, uh, somewhat serious list of uh, fifteen or so questions. If foreign policy nerds were in charge of uh, the town hall debate, what would you hear? But the reality is that the list of major global challenges that haven't been addressed in this election year is so much longer than the ones that have come up in the campaign context. It's amazing to me that we have seventy thousand troops in Afghanistan, and yet it doesn't rate a mention in most of the major moments of this U.S. presidential campaign. That's just, it's its astonishing, right? What's the reason for that? Well, it seems to me that, that both parties, for very different reasons, have come to the conclusion that there is no real political advantage for them. So instead of this consequential issue, Afghanistan, uh, catching on with the public, uh, we, we've got uh, this phrase, a binder of women that seems to take off on Twitter and Facebook. Have you seen any responses to that turn of phrase from beyond our shores? I, I guess what I would say is that I'm sure that Romney's comment about a uh, binder full of women was noted internationally, but it might have just been one of those Americanisms that just didn't compute. Uh, Maybe it's a do not translate type of a phrase. Now, one word uh, neither candidate seems to tire of is China. They each used the word about 10 times last night. Was it a nuanced China we heard about last night or was the country used as a bit of a punching bag? nuance in the context of a foreign policy debate in an American presidential election, it's sort of an oxymoron, right? Mm. <laughs> We're not having a lot of nuanced conversations about anything at this point. And China clearly has emerged as, as a bugaboo of this year's election. Somebody pointed out just the other day that, in fact, actually Japan may now be the largest uh, holder of U.S. debt. But it doesn't really sound the same in this election year to scare people about Japan and, you know, do you want the Japanese holding uh, our debt in the same way that it resonates clearly with voters or they wouldn't be talking about it uh, to use China as, as a sort of scare tactic? That being said, I am skeptical. And, and I think if you look at a lot of the experts, they're quite skeptical that you're going to see any kind of major policy shift either by Obama or Romney in, in the next U.S. presidential term when it comes to China. Susan Glasser, the editor of Foreign Policy magazine, thank you so much for your time. Oh, thanks so much for having me today. In case you didn't hear what Romney and Obama had to say about China last night, here's a quick sample of their comments. Now, we're going to have to make sure that as we trade with other nations, that they play by the rules. And China hasn't. When he talks about getting tough on China. Cracking down on China when they cheat. We had to make sure that China was not flooding our domestic market. Number two, trade. I'll crack down on China. Surveillance equipment for China to spy on its own folks. On day one, I will label China a currency manipulator. Governor, you're the last person who's going to get tough on China. It seems pretty black and white. China bad, America good. The world's Aaron Schachter wanted to find out how that view of China goes down in one of the most well-educated zip codes in America. It's 02138, also known as Harvard Square. We're at Pete's Coffee Shop. They sell a wide range of lovely coffee products here, from cups to uh, French presses. Let's look at where some of them are made. Here's one, the Contigo Auto Seal Technology. That's made in China. Another cup, metal cup, hefty, feels good in the hand, also made in China. A small, low-fat latte with room for Roger? We're trying to figure out what people here in Harvard Square 
one of the smartest places on the planet know about China and our relationship. Can you say your name? I'm Elizabeth. Elizabeth. Romney started the debate last night by talking about China as a currency manipulator. Do you know what the currency is in China? I have no idea. <laughs> does it matter? Of course it does. It affects our trade, our exports, and our imports. And I think, you know, China, is, it's been talked about politically, is kind of the elephant in the room of, you know, the future of our economy, the future of our manufacturing industry. So very few people know the currency is the yuan. But we all know China's bad, right? I definitely disagree with that statement. <laughs> Isn't that what we learned from the presidential campaign? There is a lot of rhetoric that's thrown around in the presidential campaign that is completely untrue and false lies, as we know as well. I'm shocked to hear you say that. Um, question is, just say your name first, if you would. My name is David. You're not from... America, but you're living here now, you're getting all your information now about China. What, what is it telling you? What do we know about China? Well, we know a great deal about China that the presidential candidates are not telling us. They have a particular line. It's a rather hostile line. It's a very narrow line on China, but not one that reflects the full range of information that's available to American voters or anyone who really wants to find out about what's happening in the world at the moment. What is, what is it we're missing? America good, China bad, manipulates the currency, whatever it is. What more do we need to know? I didn't realize I was being interviewed by Mitt Romney here. <laughs> You're giving a wonderful parroting of his very narrow view of uh, uh, China's place in the world. Uh, it's, it's going to be a major competitor, but it may, may be a major ally. My name is Chris Mackin. I want the Chinese people to prosper, but I want them to prosper through developing their own capabilities and infrastructures and not necessarily by having rich people over here sell out our treasure, you know, and our, our industrial base. For a quick buck. Well, here in Pete's Coffee Shop in Harvard Square, we found that people were a lot more thoughtful than uh, we might have realized. They're thinking about China and its place in the world and how it affects America. That was the world's Aaron Schachter with a sample of opinions about China's role in the U.S. presidential race. In politics, words can take on new meanings and fast. The phrase binders full of women had absolutely zero currency before last night when it was uttered by Mitt Romney. Now it's what a lot of people remember as the takeaway moment of the second Obama-Romney debate, full of perceived meaning about women, the workplace and power. In Australia, another word has gotten caught up in a political battle over the role of women in society and politics. That word is misogyny. Here's the world's Patrick Cox. Australian Prime Minister Julia Gillard has become a YouTube star these past few days. I will not be lectured about sexism and misogyny by this man. I will not. And so Gillard started what's quickly become quite a famous speech, lauded by women around the world. She made the speech in Australia's parliament last week. She was defending her government, which had been accused of protecting the Speaker of the House, He'd been caught using sexist language. Rather than talk about that case, Gillard turned the tables on her government's accusers, specifically opposition leader Tony Abbott. The leader of the opposition says that people who hold sexist views and who are misogynists are not appropriate for high office. Well, I hope the leader of the opposition has got a piece of paper and he is writing out his resignation. Because if he wants to know what misogyny looks like in modern Australia, he doesn't need a motion in the House of Representatives. He needs a mirror.
Gillard's opponents didn't take kindly to this speech. More than a few objected to her use of the word misogyny. They said that was going too far, much farther than the word sexism. Sexism, they pointed out, means discrimination based on a person's sex. But misogyny means intense dislike and mistrust of women. That's what the dictionaries say. Well, for the time being. Sue Butler is editor of the best-known dictionary of Australian English, the Macquarie Dictionary. After watching Gillard's speech, she and her fellow editors wondered about their definition of misogyny. What we had was the definition that had been standard for some centuries, that is, the hatred of women. But it seemed clear to these dictionary editors that Gillard wasn't using the word quite like that. This was not really a pathological hatred of women, but a common or garden prejudice against women, particularly women in positions of power. So we felt that uh, we needed to do a bit more research on the word, which we did, and tracked its history back to feminist discourse in America, where it was used as a synonym for sexism. A synonym with a bit more bite to it, perhaps, but still in the same range of meaning of entrenched prejudice. And so the editors of the Macquarie Dictionary have announced that they'll be updating their definition of misogyny to reflect the way it has evolved in recent decades. And that's enraged Prime Minister Gillard's political opponents for a second time. They say the dictionary's letting her off the hook rather than forcing her to take responsibility for her hyperbole, to which Macquarie editor Sue Butler shrugs and points out that many words change their meanings over time. It is perhaps, though, worth considering some of the statements of opposition leader Tony Abbott the very things that Gillard was calling misogyny. He once wondered on TV whether it was a bad thing that men have more power than women and suggested that men might be more adapted to exercise authority. And then there were his personal attacks on Julia Gillard. I was offended when the leader of the opposition went outside in the front of parliament and stood next to a sign that said, ditch the witch. I was offended when the leader of the opposition stood next to a sign that described me as a man's bitch. I was offended by those things. Misogyny, sexism. It almost makes last night's presidential debate seem friendly. Well, almost. For The World, I'm Patrick Cox. And to check out Patrick Cox's language podcast, The World in Words, go to theworld.org. Still ahead on the program, tracking the gradual melt of a glacier on PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save a Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach the public life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Today we continue our weekly series with our partners at the PBS program Nova Science Now. Tonight on that show, host David Pogue asks, can science stop crime? We've got our own take on that question. You've heard the expression, you are what you eat. Well, that's being put to use by scientists and detectives. It turns out our bodies record not only what we eat, but also where and when we've consumed it. And that can provide important clues in murder investigations. Nova's Ari Daniel Shapiro has the story. Leslie Chesson opens a box inside her office at Isoforensics, a Salt Lake City-based company that uses science to fight crime. She runs her fingers along a series of manila envelopes and pulls one out. It's bulging. That one definitely has hair in it. Human hair. Chesson, a senior scientist at the company, reaches into the envelope and pulls out a mass of brunette hair. 
Her colleague, Luciano Valenzuela, looks to see where it came from. It's hair from Shawnee. Shawnee, Oklahoma. Chesson and Valenzuela have envelopes and vials stuffed with hair from not only all over the U.S. Louisiana, Arkansas, Oklahoma, But Texas, from all over the world. Guatemala, Japan, Newfoundland. Thailand. They've actually got hair from every continent, even Antarctica, and they're using all this hair from regular, everyday people to perfect a technique to help solve murder cases. Let me explain. Both Chesson and Valenzuela were mentored by the same man at the University of Utah, Jim Elringer. I'm trained as a plant biologist. But his interests go well beyond plants. About a decade ago, Elringer got curious about animals and whether he could develop a new technique for addressing a question wildlife biologists commonly ask. Where do animals eat and drink, and does the location of their watering hole, say, change over time? Now, I could find out by being in the field every single minute of the day, or I can let nature do the recording for me. Elringer went for the second option. You see, nature does record what an animal eats and drinks in its tissues. That's because every chemical element comes in different flavors. Take the hydrogen and oxygen that make up water, H2O. There's lighter hydrogen and oxygen and heavier hydrogen and oxygen. These different flavors, or isotopes, are found in different combinations depending on where the water comes from. And those combinations get laid down in the growing tissues of the animals that drink them, tissues like hair. The hair becomes a linear tape recorder. So it tells us a little story about the history of what an animal was eating or drinking. Elringer suspected the same thing would apply to humans and our hair. So he and his colleagues collected hair from local barber shops across the U.S. to test a hypothesis, that it was possible to tell where hair came from based on an analysis of the hydrogen and oxygen in the local water supply. Another collaborator on this project, a geologist at the University of Utah named Tori Serling, says the vast majority of the water in our diet is local. People often say, well, oh, I don't drink water, I drink Coke. Well, then I'll ask you, where was the Coke or the Pepsi bottled? In Salt Lake City, it's bottled in Salt Lake City, and they use Salt Lake City water. Sure enough, the scientists found that hair and water look different in different parts of the U.S., they can display that variation on a map with rainbow colors. Luciano Valenzuela shows it to me. It looks like the temperature maps that you see during the news that will show you where it's hot and where it's cold. Yeah, it's red in Texas and Florida, and then it gets yellow in the Midwest, and then blue in Montana and Wyoming and Idaho. That's what it looks like. Which means that if you examine a single strand of hair and compare it to a map like this, you get a pretty good idea of where someone was when that hair grew. And not only that, but if you look at how the isotopes change along the length of the hair, you can figure out if someone has traveled. So our hair acts like a timeline, recording where each of us has been and when we've been there. Now, at about the same time that the Utah scientists were developing this technique, a team in the U.K. was working on the same approach. And early on, it was clear this tool could be valuable in solving crimes. I got approached uh, for the first time in 2004 by a police officer. Wolfram Meyer Augenstein is a chemist at the James Hutton Institute in Scotland. He's examined the isotopic composition of hair and water in Europe and the Middle East, and he's used that information to help police in the UK, United Arab Emirates, and elsewhere with about a dozen murder cases. 
He's not at liberty to talk about most of them, but in one case he can discuss, a man was found dead in Wales several years ago. The man appeared to be Asian, but police didn't know where he came from or when he entered the UK. The man's hair was almost six inches long. Meyer Augenstein says that was long enough to determine where the man had lived in the year before he died. The person lived in the Ukraine for three months, moved then to Germany for six and a half months, and then to the United Kingdom prior to his uh, untimely death. The police knew of an organized crime gang that was shuttling illegal Vietnamese immigrants into Britain via Ukraine and Germany. The police suspected the murder victim had been smuggled into the UK by that gang. Once the clue from the hair analysis had confirmed that suspicion, the other bits of the puzzle came together. The police learned that the man was originally from Vietnam and had been killed in a dispute over marijuana. John House is in charge of the Criminal Investigative Division at the Royal Newfoundland Constabulary in Canada. He's used this type of forensic analysis of hair and says it can offer a starting point for murder cases that would otherwise go cold fast. In any homicide investigation, knowing who the victim is is critical. Who they associate with, where they've been, without that information, we're really at a standstill. And by examining hair in this way, scientists can learn other things about a person's diet, whether someone was a vegetarian or vegan, preferred fish to chicken or beef, or had gone through a sustained period of starvation. All of these details might prove helpful in identifying a murder victim. Back in Salt Lake City, Luciano Valenzuela pulverizes a hair sample. And now we check the container and see how we did. It's one of the first steps the staff here at Isoforensics uses to analyze hair isotopes. The company gets requests from law enforcement agencies once or twice a month, and the demand is growing. And the scientists continue to refine the technique by gathering more hair from other parts of the world. Here's Leslie Chesson again. Obviously, everywhere we go and every time we get a chance, we continue to collect samples. She looks over at Valenzuela, who's from Argentina. Luciano, maybe we should send you home for Christmas and send you on a collecting trip. <laughs> that chance will come soon enough. He returns to Argentina next year to start his own lab. His goal? To create a detailed map of the invisible variations in hair and water across his own country. For Nova and the World, I'm Ari Daniel Shapiro, Salt Lake City. You can see what that map looks like for the United States and check out the hair collection from around the world at theworld.org. And don't forget to watch Nova Science Now. Host David Pogue explores the question, can science stop crime? That's tonight on PBS. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead, why it's hard to get a straight answer from candidates when it comes to climate change. I think on that, the devil's in the details. When you start looking at trying to regulate uh, something like carbon dioxide, uh, which is a natural uh, biological process, uh, you start running into areas of, of confusion. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save-A-Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach the public life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. 
I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. The issue of renewable energy came up early and often in last night's presidential debate. President Obama and Republican challenger Mitt Romney both voiced support for green energy, but they didn't talk about the environmental benefits, let alone climate change. Political candidates seem to have a hard time making that connection in this campaign season, as the world's Jason Margolis found in a tight congressional race in Nevada. When Republican Congressman Joe Heck gazes out his window in the city of Henderson, it's bright and sunny. It looks like this about 300 days a year here in the southern Nevada desert. Capturing and converting those rays of sunshine into energy means one thing to Heck. There are a lot of jobs that can be potentially associated with our energy policy. Heck's favorite energy policy includes tapping into more coal, oil, and natural gas, as well as renewable sources like solar and wind. Solar energy in particular has gained a lot of popular support here. Heck is a physician by training. I asked him if his support for renewable energy is also driven by scientific and environmental concerns, and if he'd support curbs on greenhouse gases. I think on that, the devil's in the details. When you start looking at trying to regulate uh, something like carbon dioxide, uh, which is a natural uh, biological process, uh, you, you start running into areas of, of confusion. To clarify, I asked if he believes climate change is happening. Well, I think certainly over the millennia, we've seen changes in our climate both ways. Uh, and I think throughout the future millennia, we will continue to see climate change. That goes both ways. Uh, but the issue for this election is not what's going to be happening in the next 200 years. It's going to be what's happening in the next 12 months. Heck answered most of my questions on a range of topics directly, but not this one. His Democratic challenger, John Osagera, also mentions green energy on his campaign website without addressing the environmental benefits. He didn't respond to interview requests. None of that surprises Christopher Stream. He's the director of environmental and public affairs at UNLV. Because climate change is so low on the list of concerns... I, you would see it as an elected official. I am not going to tread into that debate when it currently is not something my constituents care about and could only be used as fodder against me uh, in an upcoming election if I tread too far into it and say it's a big deal or that I believe it or I don't believe it. Yet Republicans from Joe Heck to Mitt Romney repeatedly bring up the topic of green energy. UNLV political scientist John Tooman explains why. I think the Republicans uh, hope to seize on energy again to draw a contrast between you know, Romney and Obama in terms of what's the appropriate role for government. President Obama says government investments in wind and solar have supported nearly a quarter million jobs over the past four years. Many Republicans, like Joe Heck, argue the price tag for those jobs was too high, a waste of taxpayer money. Again, we've got to get out of the business of picking winners and losers, because I think the last round has shown that we've done pretty well at picking losers, not winners. That's also a point Mitt Romney made during the first presidential debate. The Obama administration has made some green energy loan guarantees that have gone belly up, most notoriously to the company Solyndra in California. But most of the companies that got government support remain open for business. The government stepped in in part because traditional sources of energy, like coal and gas, are still far cheaper to produce than solar or wind. I asked Joe Heck if he would back government support for new solar, wind, or geothermal projects in his state. He said he'd have to look at the business model of the entity looking for support. Chris Stream at UNLV says with the uncertain economics of renewable energy, that's a smart political response. I, if I was an elected official, I would tread very lightly on, on renewable energy. So I would say right now, 
It's probably a bumper sticker kind of a, it's a wait and see kind of a mentality. I want to talk about it because I think it holds out hope for economic growth, but I also don't want to, I don't want to pin all my hopes on it happening within my next election cycle. Perhaps politicians will feel more at ease having a more detailed policy discussion about green energy on Wednesday, November 7th. For The World, I'm Jason Margolis, Las Vegas. By the way, I'm headed to London for the election. Yes, the U.S. election. America is voting, but the world will be watching and listening. Now, this is where we have an assignment for you. We want to know what the election sounds like for you in languages other than English. Go to theworld.org slash elections and look for the big orange record button. All will be explained there for you to complete your mission. But first, another mission for you. A glacier-fed river in Asia is the focus of today's GeoQuiz. I want you to name an 1,800-mile-long river that originates in Tibet, high in the Himalayas. It winds its way south through India and Bangladesh before it finally empties into the Bay of Bengal. The river provides drinking water for millions of people along the way, as well as irrigation to farmers. But climate researchers say the high-altitude glaciers that are the source of this river are melting fast. This scientist has been out to see one of these massive glaciers up close. It's this ice field that caps a beautiful series of mountains, and it pours over a cliff in a series of ice falls that resemble teeth, so the Dragon Tooth Glacier. Coming up, we'll hear more about the fate of that Dragon Tooth Glacier. First, name the river that gets its waters from it. Remember that story from Spain last month about the church fresco ruined by an elderly woman trying to restore it? The original fresco inside a church in the small Spanish town of Borja depicted Jesus. By the time 80-year-old parishioner Cecilia Jimenez was done with her botched restoration project, it looked more like an abstract figure, perhaps not even human. But wait, there's an unexpected twist, as the world's Jerry Haddon explains from Borja. About the only thing the original fresco shares with Ms. Jimenez's touch-up is the wall it's painted on. The work, called Behold the Man in English, is now referred to as the Monkey Boy of Borja. At first, church officials and townsfolk were horrified. Not anymore. Here in the Sanctuary of Mercy Church, on a recent weekday morning, the place is already filling with tourists. They glance around at the Baroque altar, some of the statues, all out of politeness, but soon enough, they drift over to the real draw. Behold, the monkey. After a quick peek, visiting tourists Miguel Angel and Charo Martin head back outside to reflect. We just came up here because of the stories that have been on all the TV shows, Miguel Angel says. We were curious. It's what tourists do, Charo says. We go to see the silliest things on offer, and this is one of them. Silly, perhaps, but now also, and to everyone's surprise, a moneymaker. In the entrance to the sanctuary, custodian José María Aznar tends the till, charging one euro to get in and 12 euros for a lottery ticket bearing the image of the defaced fresco. 
Entry used to be free. Afnar says he's not used to handling so much cash and messes up people's change all the time. He says usually in mid-October we get about 20 visitors a day during the week. Now it's up to 150. And on the weekends we're getting up to 1,500 visitors. Everyone is really happy with what's going on. The money, Aznar says, is being used to maintain the sanctuary and to support an old folks' home. But the money flow doesn't end here. Borja's hotels have all been booked solid this fall. That's a first. And the bars? Antonio Romano owns the eatery just in front of the sanctuary. When asked if there's been a monkey boy knock-on effect, he laughs. If it weren't for the fresco, he says, as he serves beer to tourists, you yourself wouldn't be here with your microphone. Draw your own conclusions. The knock-on actually reaches far beyond Spain. In the UK, the low-cost airline Ryanair has jumped on the buzz, offering dirt-cheap flights to nearby Zaragoza. In the U.S., someone has come up with a monkey boy Halloween costume, complete with the sideways mouth and the ring of hair around the head. There are also online art contests where you can try your own hand at the restoration. Some are serious, but most are tongue-in-cheek. There's a Chewbacca fresco, a Kermit the Frog version, you name it. And in a nearby village, they're now making a monkey boy wine. But amidst the rush to cash in on the image, a battle may be looming over who controls it. The church has claims, since the fresco is on its wall. But the elderly artist Jimenez has lawyered up. If it wasn't for her well-meaning mistake, her argument goes, Borja would never have gotten on the map. For The World, I'm Jerry Haddad, Borja, Spain. If you haven't already, you just have to see the before and after pictures of the botched fresco. They're on our website, along with Jerry's pictures from the town of Borja, where the fresco has become a tourist, a sensation. That's all at theworld.org. Our geo-quiz takes us to the remote Himalayan nation of Bhutan. That's where Aaron Putnam is. He's a climate research scientist at Columbia University. Aaron, why choose a remote mountainous region of Bhutan to do climate research? Well, it's it's um, this remote mountainous region is uh, serves as a major water resource. The glaciers and the snowpack in the Himalayan region are the major source of water that, that flows downstream and serves as drinking water and hydropower. We're looking at a glacier ahead of one of the tributaries that feeds into the Brahmaputra. So the Brahmaputra River is the answer to our geo-quiz. Give us a description of the ice field. What are you seeing when you go out there? Okay, well, well first of all, we... Um, it was a, a welcome sight because it took us six days of walking to get in there. Our campsite was about just shy of 17,000 feet. And it's, it's this ice field that caps a beautiful series of mountains. And it pours over a cliff in a series of ice falls that resemble teeth. So we call it the Dragon Tooth Glacier, which our Bhutanese colleagues refer to as the Druxo Gangri. So it's a beautiful quite rugged place and the air is quite thin. So tell us about this glacier and and how you're actually measuring the impact of climate change on it. Okay, first of all, we're going actually going onto the ice and putting stakes in the ice that over the course of the following years will help us to measure how rapidly the ice is melting and that is of course important for the discharge down the rivers. The second approach involves trying to assess the way in which these glaciers have changed in the past in response to past climate change. And we're using geologic method of that um, by tracing the former limits of the ice and reconstructing uh, how it's changed. 
And the uh, third component of the research is to use tree rings. And we're, we're working with some folks who are experts in this subject who will try to decipher the last few centuries of climate change from nearby tree rings. So we're, we're trying to get a comprehensive view on how glaciers respond to climate change in this part of the Himalaya. What do you have a sense of in terms of the before and after shot of this glacier? What does it look like today? What do you think it looked like, say, 100 years ago? I mean, that's one of the things we're trying to quantify. But at, at first glance, it looks like uh, that 100 years ago, the ice was considerably more extensive. It produced a beautiful ridge of debris, which has now been abandoned and been replaced by a large lake. The ice has retreated up onto a, a series of cliffs and is now just a, a small ice field. They appear to be receding at a fair pace, consistent with the rest of the Himalaya. So what does this mean for the people who depend on this tributary of the Brahmaputra for their livelihood, for drinking, for farming? I'd say that's it's, a, it's extremely important because the glaciers essentially are, are long-term indicators of what the snowpack is doing. The snowpack is the primary source of, of water that, that drains down into, into this major river system. So it's going to affect the water tables in Bangladesh, the recession of, of the snow and ice in the Himalaya, and it will also affect the hydropower generation downstream, in this case in Bhutan, which is a major resource that is exported to India and Bangladesh. So it, it's, it, it will reach many facets of people's lives downstream. What about when you speak with the local Bhutanese? Are you getting a sense from them that they're impacted by this glacial melt? Oh, they're very cognizant of, of the problems. In fact, the reason why we're here is because we're collaborating with the Bhutanese government, particularly the Hydrology and Meteorology Department. Hydropower is a main resource for them, and so they're um, extremely interested in the glaciers and mountain snowpack, and they, they want, they're very proactive about understanding the problem and, and, and mitigating it. Water from a melting glacier, what does that taste like? <laughs> it's pretty gritty. When you brush your teeth, I'm sure it uh, probably does a good job of cleaning off your teeth, but it probably cleans off some of your enamel as well. <laughs> Aside from gritty, does it have a pure taste? Actually, it's a little bit muddier than most, uh, most water, to be honest. <laughs> doesn't sound quite as good as Fiji water now. <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> Aaron Putnam, research scientist at the Lamont Doherty Earth Observatory at Columbia University, giving us the answer to our geoquiz today, which is the Brahmaputra River. Aaron, thanks for speaking with us. Okay, thank you. This is PRI. The world is supported by WGBH, producer of Nova. Explore the gap between the glamorous television world of CSI and the reality of the forensic crime lab. With few established scientific standards, no central oversight, and poor regulation. Nova's Forensics on Trial, tonight at 9, 8 central, on PBS. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Mitt Romney has been spending a lot of time attacking President Obama's economic record. During last night's debate, the Republican candidate said that four more years of Mr. Obama would put America on the road to Greece. It was Romney's second brief nod to Europe's economic woes. In the first debate, he said he didn't want America to go down the path to Spain. The world's Clark Boyd has been reporting on the financial crisis in Europe for the past two years. And Clark, for Spain, now Greece, I mean, I remember after the first debate, Spaniards reacted pretty negatively to Mitt Romney's remarks. How about the Greeks? 
Well, Marco, there there was a little bit of reaction last night on Twitter. I was I was following things, and there were a couple of uh, uh, Greek bloggers that I follow. One of them said, "Hey, I'm I'm a little bit offended that he he made that that remark about Greece," uh, and another one used it as an opportunity to kind of make a joke, uh, basically uh, put putting it in terms of the ongoing negotiations that Greece is having with uh, with other countries in Europe about getting its bailout money, saying, "You know, this is this is a chance for us to say, hey." The Greeks will do anything you want us to to get to, to make you want to get on the road to Greece. Sounds a bit like the bumper sticker politics that uh, China is used for. It does lead me to to ask you, though, Clark, just where is the Greek economy headed these days? I mean, things have seemed pretty quiet lately. And the big headline today is that Greece's state television censored a gay kiss in their broadcasts of Downton Abbey. So. Does that mean things are returning to, if not normal, semi-stable? Well, I, I should have mentioned, Marco, that, that one of the reasons that you're not seeing a lot of uh, a lot of reaction from Greece today on this particular thing, and I, I pinged a few of my contacts there, they were saying, well, you know, you have to understand all the journalists are on strike today. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> so there's no comment about much of anything. And, and all of this, of course, is, you know, are things getting back to normal? And no, things aren't back to normal at all in Greece. Things are things are still very, very bad there. They're in these ongoing negotiations with uh, the so-called Troika, which is the, the EU, the IMF, uh, the European Central Bank, to try to get this next round of, of bailout funds. Uh, those talks came to an impasse earlier this week. They seem to be back on, but there's still a, a long way to go. You know, Greece is in its fifth year of recession now. Mm. Uh, unemployment is well over 25 percent. It's a grim situation right now. And what about the rest of Europe? Well, the rest of Europe is still trying to figure out what to do. Again, this is, you know, as we keep reporting on this story, things get bad. Eurozone leaders react to it. They try to do some sort of big high-profile announcement that says Europe's financial problems have been solved. And then three months later, all of the problems are back and, and countries are, are at loggerheads again about what to do about it. So aside from these uh, euro asides in the debates, I mean, why do you think the two main U.S. candidates have hardly mentioned Europe or the, the economic crisis there? I mean, surely what happens over there affects things here. They know that. <laughs> so one, of the, one of the frustrating things about this story, Marco, is that you keep trying to hammer home, you know, Europe is still America's biggest trading partner. What happens there really does have a, a very major impact on the economy here. Uh, I think that uh, in the case of Mitt Romney, he's you know using those examples that are in everyone's mind right now, Spain, Greece, as sort of saying, we don't want America to turn into that. And I think from the Obama camp, what you're hearing is, you know what, it's probably just best not to touch this. We'd like this entire sort of economic financial instability to stay quiet, at least until after the election. The world's Clark Boyd. Thank you for the update. You're welcome, Marco. Now, I know quite a few of you know about this next story because there's been a lot of traffic at theworld.org from you telling us about the first concert you went to. So last week we aired an interview with a Canadian woman professing her love of the Canadian rock band Rush. That inspired world producer Andrea Crossan to reveal in a blog that her first rock concert was Rush. She also explained that it's something she's lied about for most of her life because, hey, Rush isn't exactly cool anymore. Some would say never was, but you didn't hear it from me. Now, it turns out that lying about your first concert isn't that unusual. Andrea is with me in the studio, and you've been hearing some confessions since you wrote this blog, Andrea. Marco, it's true. I had no idea that the floodgates were going to open when I wrote this blog. But it turns out I'm not the only person who's been lying about their first concert. And I've had all these people confessing to me. I feel like a priest absolving 
accusing people of their musical sins. It's your own little musical confessional. So throw a few at me. Okay, well, the first one, Marco, is from Tiana. She's in Toronto. And she wrote to me about her little white lie she's been telling about her first concert. Here's the band she tells people she saw. Uh, Frankie Goes to Hollywood. That's right. It's Relax and Frankie Goes to Hollywood. That's pretty cool. If it was Tiana's first concert, it would be cool. It was not Marco. It turns out that this is the band Tiana actually saw. Robert Plant and the Honey Drippers. Oh, yeah. What's wrong with this? This is cool. Oh, well, it's a little swoony compared to some good Frankie Goes to Hollywood. Tiana, I didn't think uh, you really needed to lie about that. But anyway, that's, that's just me. Okay, so the next good lie comes courtesy of Tim. Here's what Tim says was his first show. Oh! Put your hands together. Are you feeling it now, Marco? Cameo? No, man, it's a little George Clinton. Parliament? Indeed it is. Shame on me. Okay, so instead of seeing George Clinton in Parliament, this is the concert he actually attended, and just to be clear, he was with his mom. Tina Turner. It is the one and only Tina Turner, giving us simply her best. That's not too shabby. No. This period might have been something to lie about, though, in Tina Turner's career. I think the big problem is the fact he was there with his mom. Yeah, you don't like to say that. But also, Marco, we threw this question out on Twitter for listeners to tweet to us using the hashtag MyFirstConcert. And we had a bunch of responses. One of them was from Jenny McIntosh, who tweeted that her first concert was the jazzy soft rock of Yanni. And I have to say, I may have been tempted to lie about that one, but... Jenny does not. She doesn't lie about it. She says it's a good story, and she went with her dad. Honesty is the best policy, Jenny. (laughs) But my favorite tweet comes from Scott Dolan, who says that his first concert was Black Sabbath, and I'm going to say that's pretty cool. Yeah, except. Except. He writes, tried to sneak from the last row during the warm-up band. It didn't work, and someone puked on my seat. Yeah, so that'll teach you to try to sneak up to uh, other rows when you've got an assigned seat. Yeah, that was a tough lesson learned there for Scott. So the last word on this is going to go to Dee, who wrote into our website, theworld.org, with this comment about my Rush blog. Dee writes, I don't get it. If you had said your first real concert was Billy Squire or Sheena Easton, I could understand. But Rush is a perfectly respectable first concert. So thank you to Dee for that and for writing and giving Rush some props. And I've chosen my favorite Rush song to say goodbye. And which is it? What else, Marco, could it be but Rush's classic, The Spirit of Radio? The world's Andrea Crossan. Thanks so much. Thank you, Marco. If you want to check out Andrea's blog about Rush, it's at theworld.org. And keep on tweeting us using the hashtag MyFirstConcert. If you want to know my first concert, I did lie for many years, but now I own it. And I'll be tweeting about it later, at Marco Werman. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH, thanks for joining us. 
The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI and WGBH, supported by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives. GatesFoundation.org. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs. By the Skoll Foundation, supporting social entrepreneurs and their innovations to solve the world's most pressing problems at skoll.org. And the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. MacFound.org. PRI Public Radio International.